Let's open God's word to the Old Testament, to the book of Isaiah, to the book of Isaiah. We've already heard the, the reading from the Gospel of Matthew about the events of Easter Sunday. We're going to put them in context and, and uh, see them displayed even in the Old Testament in Isaiah 53. So right about the middle of your Bible, uh, you'll find the book of Isaiah. Let me welcome those who might be watching our live stream uh, or the recorded sermon later. God bless you for listening to his word. Uh, we do invite you to be with us and uh, for our dear friends and members that are homebound, we're thinking of you today. Let's read God's word, the whole of Isaiah 53, and then we'll be focusing just on verses 10 through 12, primarily this morning. And as I read, you will certainly hear a recap, if you will, of the life of Jesus Christ. His arrival, his ministry, his suffering, his death, the events of Good Friday, and then a little bit of Easter. Isaiah 53 says this, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not, he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they all made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt... He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Thus far we read in God's good and holy word, may he bless it to all who hear, believe, and obey it. Amen. 
Amen. Isaiah wrote these things how, how many years before the time of Christ? A few? 700 years? Americans have trouble sometimes with history. Our country's, what, 300 years old, roughly? 700 years before Christ arrived and conducted his public ministry or was despised and rejected, afflicted, arrested, crucified, pierced, dead and buried, and rose to new life, saw the light of day, 700 years before Isaiah pictures all these events. We often take for granted the profound impact of fulfilled prophecy. The Bible knows what it's talking about. It's the word of God. And Jesus isn't just somebody who seized upon some coincidences. Hundreds of prophecies about Jesus were fulfilled in his life death, and resurrection in his teaching. Here in particular, we're focusing today on this Easter Sunday about what the cross and the resurrection all means for us. Isaiah 53 is very specific about the life of Christ, about his death and his resurrection. It's interesting that this very passage was being read by a a Jew from Ethiopia. And the New Testament tells us one of the church deacons named Philip came upon him reading Isaiah 53. And Philip used these scriptures to tell him the good news. Acts 8 verse 35 says, Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, told him the good news about Jesus. And he was changed that very hour. And asked to be baptized, asked to be a follower of Jesus. Oh, it's this preacher's hope that God's word might transform lives even now in this modern day as they hear the good news about Jesus from the mouth of this prophet. But before we begin, I want to ask a question that bridges the suffering with the resurrection of Jesus and bridges the events of Isaiah with the life of Jesus. Why? Why did Jesus go through all the abasement and pain and rejection? There was a Puritan named John Flavel and he asks that question. Why would Christ so abase himself? And then he supposes, he says, If there had not been some excellent and glorious thing in his eye, the attainment thereof might give him satisfaction equivalent to all the sorrows and abasements he endured for it. Christ had in view something greater, something worth it all to do these very hard things. The answer is found in Isaiah 53, in the very verses we're going to focus on, 10, 11, and 12, as well as found in the New Testament. And the key word you might have guessed from the sermon title is the satisfaction of the risen Savior. That first Easter Sunday, the most satisfied, the happiest being on the planet was the Lord Jesus Christ. And he invites others into that joy. 
But we begin also briefly with this setup, the anguish and death of Jesus for sinners. If you have the sermon outline, you can follow along. And we're just going to highlight what Isaiah 53 tells us, as indeed that did happen to Jesus. Sorrow, grief. It begins in verses 3 and 4 with that phrase that uh, most everyone seems to know from the Bible. All we like sheep have gone astray. That's in verse 6. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Bible has an honest appraisal of the condition of human beings. It's not a very happy one. We all have the malignancy of sin in our hearts. It's in all of us, in all the systems of our being. Sin has touched our minds, our hearts, our perceptions. Our, our will is bent. And if we want to exercise our free will as fallen sinful people, we would never choose God. The Bible talks very plainly about our sin. It uses Uh, For instance, in Isaiah 53, the term transgressions, verse uh, 4, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The word transgression talks about revolt, rebellion. No, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to pull over for the law of God. I'm not going to submit to God's demands. I am going my own way. Transgressions. Not going to play by the rules. Of my creator God. That describes human beings. The word sin. And it's almost synonymous with the word iniquities. Which occurs in Isaiah 53. Talks about that guilt. That stain. That liability that we have incurred. That requires holiness and justice. To punish it. It's our own wickedness. Our guilt. We all like sheep have gone astray and we know it. Although we sometimes try to deny it. So the Bible tells us that the solution was to send this servant. Isaiah's suffering servant. A Messiah. And he wouldn't come simply to oppose the the oppressive governments of the world. Or right all the economic inequities of the world. He came to deal with the heart of the problem. That sin problem. So the language of Isaiah 53 also uses strong terms. He was pierced. He was wounded. He was crushed. For us. Christian theology calls that substitutionary atonement. Christ came and did for us. What we would have happened to us as sinners if God were to punish us. Christ takes our iniquities upon himself. The term rejected was fulfilled in Christ. We heard only on Maundy Thursday as we looked at those historic events that as Jesus sat to eat the Passover meal, he said, one of you is going to betray me. Jesus had been rejected by the crowds For what he was teaching. He was rejected even by the religious leaders. Who really should have known better. But even one who sat with him. At that last supper. Someone named Judas. Betrayed him. Sold him out. Jesus was rejected. He experienced sorrow. He was wounded. And the the term here Isaiah uses. Crushed. Interesting term, 700 years before Jesus would go to a place 
where they crushed olives to get the oil. Maybe you know it by its Bible name, Gethsemane. In that garden, they had a large stone machine. We could probably call it, didn't need electricity, animal powered. A bottom stone with some drainage and then a large stone that would be rolled across the olives to crush them. Gethsemane, olive press. That's where Jesus goes. That's where Jesus prays. And according to Luke 22, we read, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. He was crushed as he stood in for us. And interestingly enough, Isaiah 53 even refers to the Roman act of crucifixion where it says, he was pierced. What an interesting term in verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. It's not a common word in the Old Testament. Less than six times in this form. But how accurate to predict Roman crucifixion. Nails being driven into the hands and feet a spear into the side of Jesus that he might pay for our sins. And Isaiah 53 has the wonderful language of the purpose of this all. The wayward sheep, the pierced, suffering Savior, by his wounds we are healed. There's purpose in all of this. And Isaiah tells us that this death was intentional. He offered himself freely when we read in the New Testament, it would be very clear that it's the blood of Jesus shed on the cross that accomplishes this predicted deliverance. For instance, Colossians 1 says, For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It was a productive and purposeful death. And we're forgiven. We're healed of that sin wound. But that's not the whole story. Even in Isaiah 53, as we come to these chapters, we see Isaiah 53 also predicts resurrection and satisfaction. Here's the good part. Here's the Easter part right here in Isaiah 53. If we look into verses 10 and 11 and 12, see if you can hear it as I read, starting in the middle of verse 10. When his soul makes an offering for guilt... He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide with him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Resurrection talk if we have eyes to see it. In Isaiah 53, oh, that the Lord would open the eyes of Jewish people who only read the Old Testament and still seem to be waiting for their Messiah. He has come. And Isaiah points to him so clearly. Three things here. He shall see. What does that mean? An interesting expression in this very deep and emotional chapter. Well, 
We know that we see when we awaken. We know that when we're alive, we can see. This is a reference to Jesus seeing. And I think we're helped by the Dead Sea Scrolls in this text in verse 11. And you probably have a footnote telling you that the Masoretic text says, uh, he shall see, and it just leaves the verb without an object. But the Dead Sea Scroll says, he shall see light. He shall perceive. His eyes will be opened again, even though he's been crushed and pierced and laid in the grave. His eyes will be opened. This refers to resurrection. He will be alive to behold the fruition of his death. Jesus knew the plan going in, this language of knowledge. He knew why this was all taking place, and he did it to bring about salvation. And he is able to see the end result. We often don't live to see the result of our labors. I love history, and sometimes you read about this. Oh, so-and-so designed this bridge or this machine, but never lived to see it accomplished. Or you hear a great athlete who's just won a prize and says, oh, if my dad were alive to see this. Christ sees the results of his obedient death, of his sacrifice. Resurrection foretold. And resurrection is essential to the whole transaction. In 1 Corinthians 15, we're told those basic facts about the resurrection in Paul's gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Which scriptures? This scripture for one. Resurrection foretold here. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins, it goes on to say. Dr. Peterson comments here, Christ's crucifixion saves, but not apart from his empty tomb. A savior who remained in the grave would not be a savior. And Jesus' resurrection saves, but not apart from his cross. The two are inseparable in God's plan and should be inseparable in our thinking. We're going to take that up in our Sunday school class where we talk a little more specifically about resurrection. And we're happy to take your questions in this morning's class. He shall see. But it goes on with another word. He shall not only see, but the scriptures say that this suffering one who's crushed and then raised to newness of life shall be satisfied. Shall be satisfied. That's a word that speaks to you and me today, doesn't it? We live in America, the land of satisfaction, the land where lots of people want to come and partake of the fruits of this land. What do we mean when we say satisfaction? Yes, of course, you can Google it. I used to always look up in my bright red Merriam-Webster dictionary in my office, but now we look up definitions online. Be careful where you look. There are several dimensions to the use of this word. Let me just lay them out in general, and then we'll see that Most of them apply to Jesus. When we talk about satisfaction, there's that personal, experiential definition, meaning the fulfillment of one's wishes, my expectations or my needs, or the pleasure derived from that, as in 
He smiled with satisfaction. He was seeking greater job satisfaction, that personal experience. That's, we use the term that way most of the time, I think. But you know, there's also a historical sense. I throw that out there, not just for the history nerds, but it's, it's, there's kind of a formality to it, isn't it? The opportunity to defend one's public honor you know, like as in a duel back in the Founding Fathers' Day, I demand the satisfaction of my honor as a gentleman. What does he want? The well, he's not going to take a lot of pleasure. He, he wants to see something appropriately met in public view. So that's kind of a historical, maybe an antiquated sense of the term. Then, of course, there's the legal sense of the term satisfaction. The payment of a debt or the fulfillment of an obligation or a claim in full and final satisfaction of the debt paid. Can I get a receipt for that? Boys and girls, it's always wise to ask for a receipt. A subset of the legal definition is where we would put the theological definition of satisfaction. We talk about the satisfaction of the death of Christ in theology. Meaning, Christ's atonement for sin has satisfied the justice of God. Now, which of these is in view here? As it says, he shall see and he shall be satisfied. I really think Jesus is satisfied in every way. Think about it just briefly. How is Jesus satisfied? I think the personal, the historical, and the legal, theological all fit Jesus. Let's just take a quick peek. The personal satisfaction? Yes. Yes, we've read in scriptures such as Hebrews 12 too, Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why? At the end, when he's risen, does he feel satisfied because there's joy at the end he sees it and he goes for that there's personal satisfaction in his job well done in his father's joy in the vindication of the whole plan of redemption there's joy in Jesus personal satisfaction well how about the historical satisfaction pastor i don't know he didn't duel and what's this honor thing think of it this way the historical satisfaction as in the fulfillment of god's word given we've been talking a little bit about prophecy and that should really convict us of the truth of what we're talking about christians are not just having a feel-good day we're celebrating a historic event and reality there was historical satisfaction. God had made promises. And when Jesus rose from the dead and looked at his death and resurrection, he satisfied those. For instance, all the way in Genesis, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, God gave the very first kind of cryptic reference to the victory of Jesus. As, Je as the Lord spoke to Adam and Eve, he talked about... Uh, this in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. That's a fatal blow. And you shall bruise his heel. That's not a fatal blow. What's that bruising cryptic? That's a promise 
that someone born to a woman would come along and deal with that serpent, would deal with sin and death. And Jesus does that at Calvary. Another name for that place was Golgotha, the place of the skull, a bony, excuse me, a rocky structure that looked like a skull. And the cross, the wooden pillar is thrust into that earth. Makes me think of Genesis 3.15, how Christ crushes the serpent's head. It's very picturesque. But think of all the Old Testament prophecies. God would send a Messiah. I will send one to sit on the throne of David. I will send a new prophet greater than Moses. I will fulfill these things. I will come bring about a new covenant. All the promises of God were on the table. God's honor was there. And Jesus meets the moment with victory. He rises from the dead and he says, it's done. Honor, historic satisfaction. I I, I think I see that language when Jesus is speaking in John 6. He says this, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Talking about people. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus had satisfaction in his job as Savior. What that must have felt like, stepping into the fresh air on that first Easter Sunday, knowing that it was accomplished, remembering his own words from the cross, it is finished, death and sin will be no more. Jesus, satisfaction in that. And the legal The legal theological satisfaction for the payment of our debt. Just to be brief, a pastor named Rodney Klein put it this way. Christ, looking back at his suffering, will say, it was enough. I did it. I've made payment for sin. And this is exactly what he did after the agony of the cross when he cried out, it is finished. He was satisfied. All that he intended to accomplish in the cross was brought to pass. His work was perfect and complete. To bring perfect and complete salvation to his own. In the travail of his soul, he made the payment for sin. Legal satisfaction. And we have the receipt. We have the promise. It's true. Our faith is not in vain. Because Christ is alive and this is what he's done. One more aspect here about the satisfaction of Jesus. He shall see, he shall rise, and he shall divide the spoil. Do you see that language? The Bible doesn't shy away from the language of reward and victory. It's pictured throughout history, but it's part here in Isaiah 53, verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Christ receives praise and honor as his people are gathered to him. He forgives them and brings them to himself, and he delights in his people. You can read the high priestly prayer of John 17. Father, here am I, and all those you gave me, not one is lost. 
He delights to be our shepherd. He will bring all those who belong to Christ through our own resurrection. He has been exalted and he will be exalted on the last day. Hear what Paul wrote in Philippians 2. You know that famous passage about the humiliation of Christ. And he had this mind to serve. But Philippians 2 passage ends with these words. Therefore God has highly exalted him. That's getting the spoils. Philippians 2.9 Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. He is supremely exalted. None higher. Every knee bows to him for what he has done. What a payout to our Savior. Well, finally this morning, not only do we see the suffering and then we see the satisfaction, but we see an offer of salvation made to those who hear this story, to those who are told the facts of the cross and the gospel. There's good news here. I would put it this way. First, he will take your punishment He will take your punishment. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We all have sinned against God. Who's going to pay for that sin? You and I sure can. Jesus, by this work, has a pardon to offer for our guilt. Paul wrote in Romans 8.1 to believers, he said to believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who, who have faith in Jesus Christ. Because the sin gets paid for. I think like some of those shopping stores where they forget to scan your security tag and you're walking out. And I'm just thinking hypothetical. It really didn't recently happen at Lowe's or Home Depot, but it could have. You're walking out with something and the alarm goes off. Beep, 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 beep. Look, the pastor's in the door. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot. I come back, I've got my receipt. Scan the box, shut off the alarm. I have that receipt, I've paid for it. When you die, and you stand before your maker, you better have a receipt. The alarm will go off. Absolutely. Get that receipt now. Ask Jesus to take the punishment for your sins. It was the poet uh, from England, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, said, Happiness can be built only on virtue and must of necessity have truth for its foundation. When the sermon's over, you'll finish squirming, maybe go home and eat some chocolate. You'll be seeking happiness. The world seeks happiness in events and in consumption. But I think the poet understood something. 
We've got a sin debt to clear or that alarm will go off. Not only will he take away our guilt and punishment, he will bring us peace, a permanent peace with God. Isaiah 53 mentions this. Did you see it in the middle? I guess it's verse 5. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. That word is shalom, well-being, real peace. Not just a reprieve. Oh, catch your breath. I'm going to do it again. No, not just a reprieve or an armistice. Peace. Shalom. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And when Jesus offers rest, it's the real deal. Rest for that heartache, for that mental anguish, for all those concerns about the past, the present, or the future. Take my hand, says Jesus. In John 14, he said explicitly, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Real peace. And you're not going to find that in the world today. Just the opposite. I might encourage you to just unplug a little more from the world, from social media, from the news. And think on the good news. There's peace to be found here. Finally, he will take your punishment. He will bring you peace. He will shepherd you. He will shepherd you all the way home. We don't usually talk about that verb. That's an ancient activity. But it started with this thought from Isaiah 53 right at the end. Do you see what it says here? I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He makes intercession. He's praying, he's leading, he's guiding, he's caring. This verse 12 is quoted by Peter in the New Testament. Let me just give you that quote. Because that's where I get the verb shepherd to describe that. 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving in you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Here's verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And Peter adds this. For you were strain like sheep. Peter knew Isaiah 53. All we like sheep had gone astray. So how does he bring it home when he talks about the results of Christ's death for us? Forgiveness, peace, he says, You were strained like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. To have Christ is to have pardon, to have peace, now have the protection and presence of a shepherd. We might still wander, but he's right there 
to help us. All of that freely, richly given. C.S. Lewis said, God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it's not there. There's no such thing. It comes with his presence. Well, we've looked at Isaiah 53 and it's contributed to our understanding of Easter and the resurrection. So my closing word is just this, to be absolutely clear. Easter, Resurrection Day that we're celebrating is not just about spring, flowers, eggs, and newness of life. It's about salvation and new life in Christ. Isaiah 53 makes it clear. The New Testament makes it clear. But a lot of people are in denial. A.W. Tozer said the reason we have to search for so many things to cheer us up is the fact that we are not really joyful and contentedly happy inside. But that's where Christ works. He changes hearts. He gives us peace and shepherds us. My friends, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Praise God. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for showing us what you've done in history already for us to be forgiven, to have peace and life with you. Oh, Father, give us these things, we pray. Help each and every one to turn and repent from our self-centeredness and our own way. And may we go your way. May we receive Christ and live in him with joy unbounded. May we be as satisfied as Jesus himself is in your work of salvation. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.